What if I told you that there exists a world beyond ordinary sight? Surely you must have felt it. Every time you don your mask and dive into the moving waters, it surrounds you, collides with you violently while embracing your form gently. Every time you walk through the forest, it falls from the trees like unseen rain. It mixes with the air you breathe, intermingling its very essence with your own. You are one with it, and it is one with you. This world is unique, for it forms the very foundation upon which you exist. It has existed for ages before you, and will exist long after you are returned to the earth. It enshrouds you. Part of it watches over you like an angel, yet its darker side challenges your very survival. Your life depends on this balance, and yet it goes unappreciated, unmentioned, unperceived. Your connection to this world is so archaic, so primal, that to call it anything other than extraordinary is a slight against the very nature of this world. It is ugly, and it is beautiful. It changes rapidly, though its truth immutable. We have but barely scratched the surface of this parallel world, its alien tendencies so often a mirror to our own. What can we learn, I wonder, by training ourselves to fix this world into our gaze? to peer behind this mystical veil and see what hides beyond. Today, my friends, we plunge our inquisitive hands through this seemingly impenetrable drapery and bring to light but one aspect of this mystery. And all we need is that of most reliable of tools from the scientist's arsenal. A microscope. see you there. You're listening to Biodiversity, the podcast about pelagic paradigms and coral curiosities, where we bring the best in flippin' fun fish facts straight to your ear holes. It's like we're the delivery drivers of peer-reviewed aquatic science, the grub hub of fish food for your mind, the DoorDash of dope decapods. Here on the show, we examine the weird, the wacky, and the wonderful diversity of life that lives under the crashing waves of our blue home. Using cutting-edge science as our guide, we dive deep into both the common and the rare, the exotic and the ugly. So tune in for the tuna, stick around for the scorpion fish, let's descend. Today on the show, forearms. No, not forearms, forearms. We tend to think of the beauty of the ocean in terms of what we can see, but there's a whole other world beyond our sight. And while I do tend to agree that the power of the ocean is somewhat metaphysical, I'm talking science here, not actually about parallel planes. I know, both the D&D nerd and the wholeness enthusiast in me is just a little bummed out. You've heard the tale since kindergarten, no doubt, of how some of the biggest animals on Earth, such as whales, can subsist on eating nothing more than incredibly small creatures known as plankton. 
If you're like me, you probably just kind of accepted the term plankton at face value, and imagined they all kind of looked like that evil jerk who's always trying to steal burger recipes. But, and I have no idea if you know this or not, it turns out that the world is so much more complex than what you see on a children's show. I know, I was shocked too. Truth be told, there's an incredible variety of cool stuff that's just way too small for us to see, and by studying this microscopic garden, we can learn, and have learned, some absolutely incredible things. So it's time to explore just a little bit of this world. So let's get right down to the microscopic scale, which is kind of, sort of, similar to a regular scale, except it can't make you feel bad with its numbers. Today, we ask the hard-hitting questions, like, what would you do for a manifera? Foraminifera. It's a fun word to say and an even more fun thing to learn about. So what are they and why is this whole show dedicated to them? The answer to number one is simple. Foraminifera, or forams as they're informally known, are single-celled protists that have shells. These shells are often secreted by the creature itself, usually made of calcium carbonate, but it can also be comprised of a bunch of other materials, uh, such as chitin or even agglutinated found particles. That's fancy science talk for finding a bunch of small particles like sand and gluing them all together. This isn't the first time we've seen shell secretion in animals. In fact, it's all over the place. Mollusks do this all the time, and even one of my favorite species of octopus, the argonaut, does this as well. But whereas these animals have cells upon specialized cells in their multicellular aggregation that we call an animal to help with this secretion, forams have merely one. That's it! One little protist cell to handle everything, from eating, digesting, energy production, movement, reproduction, and shell secretion. What a badass little protist. Whoa. Alright. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold the heck up there, science boy. I hear you. What the ever-living whale blubber is a protist, you disembodied podcast voice? I hear you scream in my imagination. For a detailed scientific description of the protist, let me refer you to my good colleague... Dr. Seuss. When you are into the species debate, you know what you know, and boy is that great! But what if existed an odd type of creatures that vexes most all but biology teaches? Singular-celled almost but not always, they may not have legs to be walking down hallways. You think maybe fungi, animal, or plant, but placing it there, oh my, you just can't. So it must be a virus, or at least a bacterium. Yet it has a nucleus, this would be pure delirium. So what does that leave us for this thing that you've noticed? Alas, we don't know. We shall call it a protist. Thank you, Doctor. Very scientific, that. Don't know what it is? Screw it! It's a protist. Happy now, Linnaeus? Yeesh. The classification placement of protists in King Philip's court has been something of a hot debate, but Foraminifera is currently ranked at the subphylum level, right below the phylum Retaria. Being so high up on the classification chain, there are many, many branches underneath it. It's divided into six classes which further break down and down again until we get to a staggering number of species. According to the World Register of Marine Species, at the time of this recording, there are 8,897 recorded valid extant species that live today, 
Add this to an impressive fossil record of 39,910 species, account for the overlap, and we have a grand total of 48,256 valid species of forams. Let's compare this a bit to what we know of existing species that are alive today. So for your mental reference, that's over eight times the number of valid existing frog species in the world. It's between seven and eight times the number of existing mammal species in the world. 14,000 more species than the total number of recorded existing fish species. And to top it all off, about one-eighth of recorded beetle species. Hey, it was a good try. Beetles are a hard one to beat. Yeah, I know that's a bit of an unfair comparison, comparing the current and the extinct fossil record to what's just current, but hey, maybe I just wanted some shocking numbers for my clickbait title. Sue me. So, that's what forams are. Single-celled powerhouses that secrete shells. Big freaking deal, right? Why should we care? Maybe, maybe you say, shells aren't all that unique. I find them on the beach every day. So what's the big whoop? Boring. Well, non-believer, allow me to expand on the incredible qualities of these small little protists so that you, in turn, might expand your mind. And I shall do so with a three-pronged attack on your compelling, yet weak, argument. Argument 1. 4M tests are gosh darn pretty. And endlessly interesting. I'm going to have to ask you to take a look at the show notes for a visual on this one, but for being single-celled organisms, forams are freaking artists. In the scientific literature, what's called a test is basically referring to their shell, but I'm going to use them here interchangeably, just so you don't get confused. The shells that they form take on an absolutely breathtaking array of shapes, ornate tubes, six-pointed stars, these cowrie shapes with almost insectoid-looking segments, almost akin to like a, a roly-poly. Some even have these beautiful spirals that look exactly like a nautilus shell. Granted, most of them require a microscope to properly see, but the images that we have acquired are absolutely incredible, breathtaking even. Despite being single-celled, the tests that they make can be anywhere from 100 micrometers, that's pretty darn small, up to, and pay attention to this one, 20 centimeters. 20 centimeters. That's almost 8 inches. A single cell. Pause a second to just consider that. A single-celled organism who, with the shell that it makes, can reach up to 20 centimeters across. If your mind isn't blown right now, then I just, I don't know what to tell you. This is the species Syringamina fragilissima, and it's the flagship for its genus. When I first saw a picture of Syringamina fragilissima, the first thing I thought is that it honestly looked like lettuce coral. It's kind of got these wavy parts of the shell that comprise most of it. They kind of intermingle with each other and interplay with each other. And the whole thing forms this kind of half dome structure that sits on the bottom of the sea. It's really pretty. You'd think that something so mind-blowing, this single cell that's so large, would have to set some sort of world record, right? But in fact, it actually only takes the silver medal in the race for the title of largest single-celled organism ever found by man or beast. It's beaten out by an algae called Calerpa, 
It's a seaweed that can grow up to three meters or ten feet in its length. I guess length does matter in some contexts. Sorry, Syringamina. There's another mind-blowing thing about how all of this works, too. If you were like me when I was doing this research, you probably pictured a small, singular cell hiding somewhere within this protective armor layer that I've been describing as the shell. After all, most shelled organisms do it this way, from mollusks to turtles to even corals. But for most forams, this is not actually the case. The shell exists inside the cell wall. If the shell is chambered like a nautilus, the forum will often use the separate chambers as compartments of sorts for its various organelles. The nucleus would be stored in one compartment, while the mitochondria would have its own space one chamber over. And if you ask me, it's about time the mitochondria got a house of its own. It works hard, it deserves it. So, hold on. Side tangent. Let's bring it back a second. What does that mean for our 10 to 20 centimeter friend, Syringamina fragilissima? Is it truly all one cell that covers a shell that gigantic? Well, as it turns out, we have no idea. As seems to be science's favorite answer, there is a lot we don't know about these species, but we do have some interesting suspicions as to how these organisms do what they do. So let's fuel that rumor mill a little bit. When we do, the truth as we suspect it is a lot stranger than even one cell being that huge. There's a lot of unknowns here, but there is some research into similar species that suggests that they might build their shells in spurts and then abandon old parts of their shells as they grow. There's even some published evidence that other species, such as other forams and even tiny animals like nematodes, take over and use old parts of the shell as habitat. One 2004 study found four different microhabitats within the shell structure. Yo, dog, I heard you like forams, so I put forams in your foram. It really makes me wonder if this foraminiferin shell building is sort of a termite situation. The forams don't actually get to appreciate the art that they've made, they just do it. I don't know about you, but I think I'm going to pour one out for our foram friends lacking in the proper higher-order neurological function to truly appreciate their own art. But we appreciate it, you beautiful protists. Argument 2. Forams are an incredibly important part of the ecosystem. And by important, I mean that they are an integral base upon which a lot of ecosystems are even built. Being Part of that large and dubious qualifier of plankton, forams are found almost everywhere. The vast majority of them are benthic, meaning that they live at or in the bottom of their respective body of water. Yet, there are still a number of species that are free-floating in the water column. From burrowers to drifters, forams honestly do it all. Forams are so abundant that discarded, dead, and even still living shells of forams actually form a healthy portion of the seafloor sediment in some places. And one of the most exciting things I think I've ever learned comes from this fact. You see, the empty shells of one particular species of foram, Homotrema rubrum, all by themselves is what's responsible for this beautiful pink-colored sand that you can find in some of the beaches of the Bahamas. Most notably at the absolutely creatively named Pink Sands Beach. Really? 
Really, guys? That's that's the best you've got? That's like calling David Naked Man, or calling the Great Pyramid Sand Triangles. Were it up to me, I would have come up with a way cooler name. Probably something along the lines of Mermaid's Blush, Fusion Flows, or even Roseate Shores. I am available for higher tourism boards. Not only can the shells from these animals form the literal base that is seafloor sediment, but they can actually form another base, and this is the base of many animals' diets. Via gut content analysis, forams have been shown to be a part of invertebrate diets, small fish diets, and even the diets of some shorebirds. Now, this may be due to some inadvertent consumption, like when you swallow seawater, but the proof is in the gut here, and that is that to some critters, that forams are delicious and have a nice light crunch. Tasty. In addition to providing food energy, it has been theorized that some predators of foraminiferans are actually utilizing the shell material as well. An organism that consumes the shell could, in theory, make use of the calcium contained within. To my knowledge of the literature, however, this has yet to be demonstrated. It would definitely make sense, though, in my own head. A lot of foram predators do secrete shells themselves. I'm sure they could find some way to use that calcium. Forams themselves have a grand variety of ways that they can get their own energy. With so many species, it stands to reason that not all of them are the same when it comes to their feeding strategies. Some are themselves predators, actually hunting and preying on bacteria, diatoms, or even small copepods. They can hunt using extended pseudopods, kind of like an amoeba. Others have been shown to have formed an endosymbiotic relationship with microalgae, that's fancy science talk that means that they let these tiny little algae and their chlorophyll live inside them, and then they can utilize the energy from their photosynthesis in exchange for protection of the algae. One of the things that fascinates me about biology in general is just seeing the sheer number and uniqueness of the adaptions that organisms come up with to face challenges and to survive. And the fact that we see these sorts of adaptions and cool alterations to feeding strategies at this small level, this single-celled level, is just so cool. And I hope that you think so too. Argument number three, the final argument. Forams are great history professors. Now, if you weren't just imagining a tiny shell wearing a tweed jacket and heading up a lecture hall, one, shame on you, and two, you definitely are now. Arguments one and two primarily talked about the 8,897 currently existing species of forams, so what about that 39,910 fossil species that I talked about earlier? Forams have been around on Earth for roughly 500 million years, since the Cambrian period at least. There are so, so many of them, and a lot of them don't live long. High mortality rates in huge populations means there's a lot of empty shells, which means there's a lot of fossils. This is awesome for us modern scientists, because that provides huge clues to mapping what ancient Earth looked like. Finding certain distributions of these fossils can help map out where ancient seas and shores may have been. Comparing these fossil species to what we know of the existing species of forams, that can help infer what the conditions of the environment were like at the time when the fossil foram was alive. 
Now, I'm about to blow your mind because we can take this even further. How, you might ask? Well, my dear Watson, we can take it further by testing the test. 4M shells are, once again, scientifically called tests, themselves have unique chemistry, and we can use the power of science to unearth these ancient mysteries buried so long ago. The big picture of what all this means is that by performing tests on the shell's chemistry, we can actually infer data about the chemistry of the water that the foram lived in when it was alive. Even at its most basic, this is absolutely crazy. This enables us to create temporal water quality maps from fossils. We can extrapolate things like ancient ocean currents and past pH levels, all from testing tests. This is science without the fiction. Now, as a disclaimer, there's a crazy amount of dispute and complexity here, but by both stable oxygen isotope analysis and composition analysis of core samples, we have been able to map out what we think past ocean temperatures were. And with this, we can create a timeline of the rising and the falling of the ocean temperatures from ages long past. Now, this is an incredible thing, and it is endlessly fascinating to me that such a tiny, tiny little thing can be such a window into our past that it can tell us so much about the Earth as it stood millions and millions of years ago during a time that, even with our fossil record and all of the science and things that we do know, we can only guess at what it looked like. And it's all thanks to science. In my review of the literature, I found that the technology to do this, the test testing, is ever-evolving and has been the subject of some debate as to its validity. But such is the path of scientific discourse, is it not? Forams are an exciting subject, and the myriads of papers on them and the hotly contested debates in paleoceanography that surround them just goes to show how monumental a single cell can be. So I suppose if there's any lesson to be learned from the humble 4M, it's that if you're ever feeling unimportant, just remember them. Single-celled, beautiful, and insightful beyond reason. If something so remarkably simple can be so beautiful with just a single cell, just imagine how off the charts beautiful you are, what with your multiple cells, differentiated tissues, and complex neurology. If the 4M can't see or recognize the beauty and worth of the shell that it makes, then maybe you too are overlooking something incredibly special within yourself. Remember that, friends. And remember the tiny 4M when next you venture into the blue. That's it for today's episode of Biodiversity. I'll see you next time.